When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcast Network. I'm your host, Gary Morgan. With me, as always, is the beat writer for Pitt Athletics here at DK Pittsburgh Sports, Corey Crisson. How you doing, brother? And the Syracuse alum. I'll eat my all today. Happy Sunday, Gary. Uh, a 19-9 Pitt winner over Syracuse. And this game was weird. <laughs> Because it was the exact thing we wanted to see from Pitt's defense and holding Sean yeah. Tucker again and keeping him at bay. And it was not what we wanted to see from the offense. Obviously, today uh, we're looking at a 19-9 win. 19 wins on that Saturday was good enough. It happened to be. So Pitt back in the win column after losing two in a row and, and collapsing in the fourth quarter emphatically in two weeks in a row. So good to see the defense hold in the fourth. and. Uh, obviously, having uh, Del Rio Wilson in at quarterback helps out quite a bit for um, you know having Garrett Schrader out for Syracuse helped Pitt a bit there. But um, got to give credit where it's due, and, and Pitt came back, and, and that defense was absolutely outstanding on Saturday, Gary. They really were, and the the offense left points on the field. I mean, and you can you can blame the players, but some of those play calls were definitely questionable too, like especially the uh, pass back to Jared Wayne and then have him throw all the way back across the field in the double coverage. <laughs> I was like, I, I don't know, man. I, I used the lunatic brick for the first time in quite some time. I, I'm just going to say, and I've watched the Steelers all year. <laughs> so it was pretty brutal. I, I didn't understand that at all. I feel like they took points out of their own hands a few times and, probably could have made this a much more comfortable victory, to be honest, because Rodney Hammond did a great job stepping in for a Banacanda, and so did Sebo Flemister, who reached his season total in one game, really in one drive. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty yeah, basically, crazy. Basically in one drive. How cool was that, though, to see Sebo finally get his and finally get going and obviously find his way to the end zone? Pitt ran, I know exactly the drive you're talking about. Pitt ran 11 plays on that scoring drive on which Flemister scored. And uh, that was in the third quarter towards the end there that made it a uh, 17-6 ball game. Of those 11 plays, Flemister carried the ball on 10 of them. He took 10 carries on that drive. He, he was literally the drive for Pitt there. And that was really cool. And 
you know, the reaction that Fluttershire got from his teammates after the touchdown, you know, all the running backs ran over to him. Not having Izzy Abanacanda, that was a surprise to a lot of us. Uh, believe me, that was a huge surprise to a lot of us that he wasn't playing in this game. Um, right. You know, we, there were inklings like, you know, did he get nicked up at the end of the uh, North Carolina game? And then, of course, he goes through warmups. He's fully dressed. He looks good on the field. And then he's a scratch. And you have to account for that. And I even said, I went on uh, pregame with uh, Syracuse Radio and, and their play-by-play guy, Matt Park, and he asked me, he's like, there's rumblings that Izzy might not play. And I was, kind of looked at him like, what? What are you talking about? Because nobody had heard anything. This was a Pat Narduzzi special in terms of keeping it swept under and keeping it quiet. So uh, that was a surprise, like I said, to a bunch of us. But yeah, Rodney Hammond, his best game since uh, the backyard brawl. 28 carries, 124 yards, and one touchdown. And this has to go back to the offensive line. The, the, this game was won on either side for Pitt in the trenches. This offensive line was tremendous. Once again in run Absolutely. blocking. Once again in run block, and then Keen, Keen Slovis only takes one sack. So um, from that standpoint, you you love to see that the the offensive line looked better. They they played just a more cohesive game. Pitt ran a lot more heavy personnel, a lot more two and three tight end sets than we're used to seeing. Um, so that was that was definitely a design and, and getting a game plan. And you know when you're Syracuse, you have Garrett Williams out for the season. Deuce Chestnut's probably your best cover guy. But Michael Jones is really the only thing in the middle there that was going to give you problems. So once you neutralize him, you know things were a little bit easier from there. Battle of attrition on the line too. Syracuse lost defenders left and right there yeah. um, for most of the game. Their line was so depleted by by the end. Um, it actually makes what Pitt's offense did in the fourth quarter that much more disappointing because that that defensive line for Syracuse was depleted so badly and they could not get those those rushing yards when they really needed them um that said you know the defense was so strong it it almost didn't matter and it was it was a good game all in all let's talk a little bit about the offense because Kanata Mumfield he looked better yesterday at least as far as the the receiver screens that they that they try to institute this is really the first time they've worked all year i mean he's made those receptions there's just been nothing there and they really set up the downfield blocking this time and it looked you know like a finished play Mm -hmm. well mumfield six catches on six targets so perfect there 59 yards 56 of them recorded after the catch. And that, of course, includes that screenplay you're talking about that went for 29 yards. That was the longest pass play Pitt had all day. They had Slovis completed, excuse me, Keen Slovis completed 16 passes. Five of those went for 20 or more yards. So they, they looked a little bit more down the field. They gave some more opportunities for the receivers to create plays. And like you said, the timing, you know, in, in previous games, we've seen Pitt try to set these screens up, whether it's for Mumfield, whether it's for even Gavin Bartholomew on a tight end screen, or it's for Izzy, or it's for, uh, it, well, not Rodney in recent weeks, it would have been uh, Vincent Davis. But we've seen the timing be off a little bit and things just not being able to, to get set up. That play in particular was a textbook example of this of this game, whereas 
that Pitt offensive line was in their right spots. They were hitting their keys. They were hitting their assignments. They were finding the right player to block. And then obviously you get the play, you get the ball into the playmaker's hands. Jared Wayne, six catches on eight targets, his second consecutive hundred yard day. And he has a uh, long grab there of, of 24 yards, 17 yards after the catch. So really he was the vertical threat for them. And, and coming into this season, and by the way, no more, no Bub means we didn't see him, um, you know, get a target. We didn't see him much in the passing game. He was more, I think of a decoy when he was actually on the field, you know, right. dealt with an injury over the last couple of weeks. So just to have that from that standpoint, it looked like in comparison to the North Carolina game, it looked like it was a little bit more strung out and a little bit more consistent. And we didn't see plays that were tipped. We didn't tipped in the sense of, you know, um, when they're in this formation, they're guaranteed to run it. When they're in this formation, they're guaranteed to pass it. There was nothing that was shown that was indicative of, well, this is what's definitely going to happen. This was this was a really solid game call by Frank Signetti, minus probably that Jared Wayne pass that never should have been called in the first place. <laughs> I mean, I understand he was trying to throw a dagger there, but the offense was moving. So it just seemed like out of touch with what was actually happening on the field. Um, I don't think they needed to surprise Syracuse. They needed to just keep pounding them. But we should take a quick break. And when we come back, let's finish up talking about the game. And then let's touch on the overall NCAA scene a little bit, I think. And uh, where Pitt falls in it, which is a borderline bowl team right now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, and welcome back to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports. Corey and Gary with you, and we're going to pick up where we left off and start talking about the defense a little bit, Corey, because that was the star of the show, really. I mean, it was a defensive match, obviously. You end the game 19-9, part of your scoring is a safety. You know, the defense probably did some good things, and we know that, that Syracuse wasn't at full strength, but... Before the game, Pat Narduzzi said that he needed to get a little bit more out of Deslin Alexander. He specifically mentioned him to the uh, the team calling the game, and boy, did he ever. Two and a half sacks, and he probably could have had more. He probably caused more just by <laughs> – he was a wrecking ball on that defensive line. The whole defensive line was just crazy good. I mean, what, any observations there? Did you see anything different? Were they running stunts and don't normally? I mean, what were they doing? Well, Deslin, to give him a, a shout, because uh, throughout the week we've been talking about his fifth down campaign for Haiti to benefit 
young children in his hometown of Capation, Haiti, and he's doing a tremendous job trying to raise money for for that cause. He's he's got a goal of fifty thousand dollars. Last I looked, they're just over ten thousand dollars for this. So anybody that can uh, make a donation to his charity, that's the big thing. You know, he even walked off from his press conference and talked about his charity work and. You know, earlier in the week, talking to him, talking about his charity work and him working to raise money. So just wanted to put that on the forefront when we talk about Deslin Alexander, because for as good as a football player he is, he is an even greater human being and obviously a uh, two-time team captain. And that says a lot about him and what his teammates think about him. But as for the football game. Absolutely. uh, But as for the football game, uh, two and a half sacks, two and a half TFL, seven total tackles. You're right. He was the guy. He was everywhere for them. And we've been kind of calling on somebody from the pit defensive line that's not named Kalijah Kansi to do something over the, these last few weeks. We haven't gotten a lot out of Deslin over the last few weeks. We haven't gotten a lot out of Habibal Nonato really all season. He's kind of had a disappointing year by a stat standpoint and just by a feel standpoint even as well. But sure. I, what I think it came down to, and obviously for Syracuse, having Del Rio Wilson in, Schrader out, Schrader didn't dress, having Schrader out changes a lot for the Orange. But the neutralizing of Sean Tucker is another thing that has to be talked about. When when you don't have a run game like Syracuse, ha- when Syracuse runs the football well, that's when they succeed on offense. But when you're held to 25 yards on 25 carries as a team, I'm not a math major, but I think that's one yard per carry. What more could you ask for from your defense? And that just that just plugs up everything. You know that that limits Aronde Gadsden and his ability to make plays down the field. That that eliminates Alford and his place ability to make plays down the field. Syracuse averages 3.02 yards per play, uh, 145 total yards on 48 plays. They're held to three for 14 on third down. Uh, one trip in the red zone. I mean, everything was right there. Pitt did everything just in terms of dominance over the orange. And, you know, when it comes to scheme and stuff, I found it interesting that four linebackers were announced as starters. And that's not saying that, uh, you know, Narduzzi and uh, Randy Bates shifted to a 3-4 because they didn't. But I found it interesting that they were kind of using, in a way that Syracuse does, in terms of a rover. I mean, we, we saw quite a bit of Servassier, obviously, and, you know, he's always right. going to be the driving force on the defense. But, you know, over the last few weeks, the emergence of Tyler Wiltz at linebacker, who's played very well. Bengali Kamara, yeah. who had kind of a rocky game against North Carolina, even though he got quite a bit of playing time, he looked really good um, against uh, against the Orange. And, you know, look, Solomon DeShields got in the books for a sack. We saw quite a bit out of David Green up front as well. Um, Kamara got in on a couple of stops. So, look, I think that we we looked for this effort over the last couple of weeks. Um, of course, with the 38 nothing scoring margin in the fourth quarter over the last two games before this. And this defense just found ways to, to plug the holes and to attack Sean Tucker and to really just play aggressive. This is the way. And, by the way, without forcing a turnover, Pitt was able to do all of this. Syracuse didn't turn the ball over. And we've talked right. in previous weeks and we've talked all season about how this defense's calling card is creating turnovers and thriving off of that and getting off of the field quickly. Not that they were 
not that they were, you know, limited by that in any way, but also Pitt possessed the ball for, let's see what it was, 36 minutes, 45 seconds to Syracuse's 23-15. I mean, they crushed it in the time of possession. That defense was well-rested. That defense was ready to go. And they, like I said, they just got after it. And whatever the game plan was that Narduzzi and Randy Bates drew up, it worked to a T once again. It's Sean Tucker, by the way. He's averaged 24 yards per game against Pitt in three games in his career. So there's something to be said about how Pat Narduzzi has Sean Tucker, one of the best running backs in the country, figured out. Yeah, it's funny how that happens to players on occasion. Mm -hmm. But nothing spoke volumes about what this defense was going to do yesterday more to me than I promised I wasn't going to talk about using three punters, but I have to because I can't remember which one of them did it. They had this super short punt, and Syracuse got the ball like right around the 27, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And the first thing they do is sack the quarterback, (laughs) drive him back, and then stand up and stop them right there and end up in a missed field goal. I mean, that defense right there told you they were winning this game. Mm -hmm. That's right. And and – yeah, the two-yard punt was something. Uh, we all gave that a chuckle, and shout-out to the Sickos committee on Twitter because that was certified sicko right there. Um, but that's a prime example of it. You're 100% correct. And like I said, only one red zone trip for the Orange all game. I mean, when you're able to hold the opponent out of the red like that all game, that says something too. And, and by the way, Servassier Dennis against uh, his hometown team also lit it up. Eight total tackles. He led the team. He had a sack. He had a tackle for loss. So um, I don't think he's going to be having a happy homecoming anytime soon going back up to Central New York. Right. I mean, on special teams, he set up the the safety by downing the punt on the two-yard line. And then, you know, it it just sets up everything. He was was everywhere, too. He and Deslin Alexander, Kalaja Kansi. Yesterday, I thought just had incredible ball games. Probably the best they've had all season collectively, and it was really, really nice to see. Let me ask you a question about Kalaja, and and I think this is a legitimate thought because when I write about Kalaja, and I'm not going to name any names, but some people have tweeted me, they've commented on it on my post. You know, Kalaja has not really stood out to me this year. That's what some people are saying. I wholeheartedly disagree because I think he is the end-all be-all of that defensive line, and I think he has been Pitt's best, perhaps not player because Izzy, I think, would take that mantle, but I think he's been Pitt's best defensive player all year, and he's on pace to have pretty much a better season than what he had last year when he was named an All-American. So what's your take on Kalijah, and what's your take on just his performance the eye test, all of that from him this year. I think he's a victim of people not necessarily understanding what that position requires on the football field and the kind of um, stats you're going to rack up at that position. I mean, you're going to get your sacks on occasion, but that's not what you're there for. You're there to stop the run and make sure that you set the line and stop forward progress right there in the middle. That's what he does, and he does it really, really well. Uh, I I think he's done exactly what has been asked of him. If you want sacks, I mean, he, he needs to filter to the outside sometimes. I mean, people didn't appreciate Casey Hampton when 
when the Steelers had that strong nose in the middle either. And those middle interior defensive linemen, it's almost like the offensive line. You don't know there's some unless they do something wrong. And uh, you don't notice Kalaja Kansi unless he's done something right. Like really right. Unless the big <laughs> splash play comes in, right? Right. So this was entering this week. And this is per pro football focus. Entering this week, Kalijah's ranks among defensive tackles in the nation this year. In their grading system, he achieved a 90.1 overall grade. That's third among defensive tackles. He has a pass rush grade of 92.3, which is first among defensive tackles. His 32 quarterback pressures were third among DTs. And his pass rush win rate of 20.9%. So in layman's terms, how he's able to beat blocks and get into the backfield before the quarterback gets rid of the ball. Pretty self-explanatory. Third in the country in that. So he's having, again, probably a better season than he had last year. And this comes along with struggles from Hobbit Baldonado. Devin Danielson's been hurt. David Green was banged up in a couple of spots. Um, Deslin Alexander has been shaky at times. John Morgan had a strong start to his season, but it's kind of faded since. So through all of this, Kalijah Kansi is still dominant up the middle. He's He's got what I call Aaron Donald syndrome, and I'm not saying he's Aaron Donald. Okay, so let, let's... Put that to bed. No, I did that in our first show. But what I mean, (laughs) but what I mean in that sense is Aaron Donald does so many different things well. And like you said, he doesn't put up 23 sacks a year like TJ Watt does. But what he does for the defensive tackle position is unlike anything else that anybody does at that position. It is freak athlete stuff. And what Kalijah Kansi does at the defensive tackle position is unlike anything anybody else does at their position. That's what I mean by that. The very best way I can say it is really to tell you next week when they're playing Virginia, really try to watch what's happening on the line. It's hard to do sometimes when you're watching a football game live, but really try to focus on what's happening on that defensive line. We just named off a whole bunch of guys who were wrecking balls this week. Deslin Alexander. We talked about Sarasia Dennis getting into, into the backfield repeatedly. Watch who they double. They will double Kalijah Kansi. Mm-hmm. And the reason that everyone else gets such open looks at the quarterback and open looks at the running back is because Kalijah Kansi is taking a double team on 90% of the plays. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the value of having somebody like that. So, and by the way, and by the way, for as dominant as Servassier and Deslin were that we keep talking about, and rightfully so, Kalijah Kansi still had two TFLs and a sack, just right, right under the radar. Probably right where he likes to be. By the way, but right under the radar. That's that's what this player is. He's special in every sense of the way for a defensive tackle, and we need to kind of remind ourselves at times that, again, he's not going to be 23 sacks in a season T.J. Watt, but he's still going to make an impact off of the box score in every which way. Yeah, and and we'll we'll do this, like, I think towards the end of the season. I'd like to kind of do a show where we talk about who we think might, sur- might, might uh, thrive in the NFL draft from this class. And uh, I think we'll probably both mention the same things when we talk about Kalajikansi, 
he's probably a little undersized for what the NFL would look for in that position. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are going to regret passing on him. I'm just saying <laughs> a lot of people regret passing on Aaron Donald. I'm just saying mm-hmm. the the kids got a lot of the intangibles that you look for. And um, I, I think that he is underappreciated here and that is a shame. So we should move on to the ACC though. Got to talk about that a little bit. Uh, Clemson has locked up the ACC Atlantic division. UNC is one win away from locking up the coastal. They got locked into a dogfight yesterday with Virginia, and I was shocked to see how hard Virginia pushed back on them. Clemson, of course, lost to Notre Dame. Um, I mean, the ACC in general is not going to produce a national champion this year, probably. But it's been a competitive one. It really has. It has from the standpoint of the middle of the packs. We, when you have Clemson going 6-0 and in the conference, you have UNC going 5-0 and in the conference, and the next closest team is two and a half games back of you, to, basically on either side, then it's kind of a runaway thing. It's, it's not the compete level at the top that we expected to see. But that being said, the, the middle of the conference has just beat each other up. I mean – yeah. In, in in the Atlantic Division, Syracuse is three and two in conference play. NC State three and two. Florida State four and three. Louisville three and three. Wake Forest two and three. Uh, Duke on the coastal side. Duke three and two. Georgia Tech three and three. Pitt two and three. Miami two and three. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten teams in this conference with either two or three losses in ACC play. So you're jumbled up right there. It's Clemson, it's UNC, and then it's 10 teams that are kind of just like having a knife fight. You know, it's, it's so Absolutely. just, it's so just bizarre how it's shaken out this season. And look, if you're pit, I, I know that the, the coastal is obviously out at this point, but you know, when you lose to, when you lose to Georgia Tech, you lose to uh, Louisville in the way that you did. You know, you got to kind of look at yourself and say, well, we could be right there with with the Carolinas and we could be right there. But in a realistic sense, Pitt would be one game back at Carolina this week with the loss at, at UNC a couple weeks ago and would need a Carolina, a couple of Carolina losses to even lock up the coastal. So it goes to show that even if Pitt takes care of Georgia Tech and Louisville, you know, one loss in this conference still does you in. It's tough to win a conference championship, which makes, again, last year and what Kenny Pickett, Jordan Addison, what all these guys were able to do, it just makes that so much more special and unique because it's so hard to win a conference. It's so hard to win a division, much less win the whole league. So you're seeing, do I call it parody because of this jumbled up, just, I don't want to say mess, but just jumbled up, just, standings that we have here with with again 10 teams at either two or three losses in the ACC yeah it's hard to classify because it's not even a lot of the teams that we thought were going to be in it you know I didn't think Syracuse was going to be as good as they were I thought Miami would be a lot better I thought I mean it's it's difficult I didn't think UNC was going to be this good but nobody knew anything about that quarterback and Mm -hmm. 
it's it's just been a, a crazy kind of season. Wake Forest, for instance, is you know second to last in in their conference for the the Atlantic, and they're ranked. Yeah, you know, still, which yeah. makes little sense to me. But well, they'll they probably are. be unranked. They'll probably be unranked in the in the polls that come out today. By the way, it's nine teams. I miscounted. Uh, it's nine teams that have still though with you know you have Clemson, you have UNC, and then you have nine teams to fill out with either two or three losses. Um, obviously for, for a team like NC state losing Leary, the quarterback is it's awful. And it, it killed their season. Wake forest was missing Sam Harden, Sam Hartman. Yep. He dealt with an issue before the season started and maybe hasn't looked the same since Miami has been, Miami might be a bigger disappointment than Pitt has just from the standpoint of expectations versus, um, you know, what they're doing right now. Miami's two and three conference play. They're four and five overall. They're two and four at home, and that includes that just complete schlacking that Middle Tennessee State gave them a few weeks back. So That's the game, brutal. what I thought at the beginning of the year could have been the game of the year in Pitt, Miami, in the final week of the season on Thanksgiving weekend, when you're all stuffed with turkey, you're done Black Friday shopping, and you just want to relax and watch football. I thought this was going to be primetime ESPN, ABC, let's see who wins the Coastal kind of game. It's Now it might be, be a noon kickoff, yeah. <laughs> Put my hands together yeah. in prayer. Put my hands together in prayer. Let's have a noon kickoff. I'd be down I that. feel that, brother. Hey, let's take a quick break. Let's come back and talk some pit hoops. And we're back to the H2P podcast here on DK Pittsburgh Sports Podcast Network. And for Corey, we'll do the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do because he loves it so much. We're ready for some hoops. I can hear Jim Nance Yeah, the Final Four call. Ready for some hoops. So Pitt, they're going to be tipping off against Tennessee Martin tomorrow. And so, I mean, we're recording this on Sunday, I should say. But Monday. They're tipping off. Obviously, Pitt should win that game, but obviously, Pitt hasn't been a team where you could say they should win any games over the last couple of years. So, Corey, before we get into this season, we should really talk about who is and isn't available right now. Yeah, we're not going to see John Hughley on the floor uh, with a left knee sprain. He's going to be held out, and I'm not sure how long he's going to be out. We were told by sources that had knowledge of the situation that this was going to keep him out for not a long time in the stance of, you know, mid-season, but definitely an extended period of time in terms of, you know, to affect the start of the regular season. And certainly we're going to see that. Uh, No John Hughley on Monday. No Will Jeffries on Monday either with a uh, left foot injury. He We knew this, though. We knew he injured his foot in training camp and. Jeff Capel has said that, you know, he's he's targeting to be back before the start of the regular season, but obviously he didn't play in either of the exhibitions, uh, was in street clothes for them, didn't dress. So they're looking to take their time with both of these guys. Um, 
Vaison Stevenson didn't dress for the exhibition, but I think <clears throat> I think that was just a healthy scratch. So not too concerned about that. But obviously, when you don't have two year rotation guys, obviously your your leading scorer, your leading rebounder, and, and John Hughley, you know that's going to affect a lot of things. And I think that what we're going to see, at least in the games that we don't see Hughley on the floor, is I think we're going to see Capel try to rotate and play a little bit smaller. We saw that in Edinburgh against the uh, in the exhibition, I should say, against Edinburgh a little bit, where Capel used some small ball lineups, you know, to right. try to space the floor to try to create three point shooting. And this team kind of lived in, and died by three pointers. I, I mean, it's Edinburgh, so you can, but um, how much does that? How much can you make that work against Tennessee Martin? And then, by the way, West Virginia coming up on Friday, which. I unfortunately will not be there. I will be en route to Charlottesville, Virginia for football. Um, but how much how much are we going to see Caples try to do this with um, more guard play, with more players that are, you know, let's just say six, eight and shorter that are rotating in and they're trying to space the floor a little bit more and create for the extra pass. And by the way, Blake Hinson in that final exhibition. Uh, with a 29-point outing. He had 28 in the first half. I mean, he was spectacular right. for Pitt in that first half and shooting the basketball. I think it was 5 of 8 from three-point range. Nelly Cummings has looked good. Uh, Greg Elliott has looked good. So I think that in the early going, Capel's going to lean on those three, on those transfers for scoring. And then, obviously, the Twins uh, with Guillermo and uh, Fede Federico potentially rotating as starting centers and you know, we, we'll see what happens with, with the early goings and, and how Capel kind of adjusts to not having his two, at least his best player, then, uh, again, another rotation guy, Fridge Starter and Will Jeffries on the floor. So out of all of the uh, new starters or youngsters, if you will, who do you see stepping up first? Should we expect Nike Sabande to, to really step in? And, and show that his status as a recruit was, was warranted? Well, I think we could see a lot more from him in terms of just being on the floor. I mean, he, he missed last season, we all know, with the torn ACL. Um, got back to five on five about, you know, about a month and a half ago. And, you know, he looked pretty good in the exhibition. He, he scored double-digit points. He was, you know pretty much just coming off the floor as the seventh man, along with Nate Santos. Nate Santos was the first off the floor uh, for Capel. So, you know, those two guys I think will be leaned on for more minutes here to start the regular season. Obviously, uh, Jorge Diaz-Graham coming off the bench in the front court to, to supplement Hughley. Um, we saw a bit of K.J. Marshall in the exhibition. And I don't know if that's a sign of things to come, but I know Jeff Capel's really high on that, uh, that walk-on. As a, as a guard, so um, I don't know how much we're going to see him, but I think off the bench, your big three are going to be Sabande, Santos, and then in the front court with with Jorge, um, and then they're going to need him. You know, Capel went to nine men in the first half against Edinburgh, and again, it's exhibition. Right. How much do you put into that? But you know, I feel like Capel's going to be more inclined to go deeper into his rotations this year and go deeper into his bench and start to use eight, and nine players a game rather than maybe the seven or eight that we, it might be a smart strategy 
for for coaches around the league to start adopting a little bit more, if only to kind of keep the transfer per- portal from from just taking over every single year. I mean, if you can keep more players interested and involved, maybe you don't have half your roster want to leave every year, you know. So maybe going a little deeper into your bench isn't a bad thing. And I'd like to see it. I, you're right. It is exhibition season, so it's hard to take anything from it. But Capel's really never done that. Mm. So it's it's nice to see. It is. And this schedule in the early part of the season is a little interesting. Tennessee Martin isn't a, a major game by any means, but then you go right into play West Virginia, and then you have the Legends Classic in Brooklyn, New York next week. Uh a, gu- a guaranteed game against Michigan, which is, you know, under Jawan Howard, really solid program. So Pitt's kind of hitting the ground running with the non-conference early on. And, you know, the the largest domino here that we have to make sure doesn't topple over too quickly is John Hughley and seeing what his health is and maintaining. And, um, you know, obviously, whenever he's able to get back, that's going to change things a lot in terms of who Capel puts on the floor, what his position groupings are, um, how many men how many men he uses off the bench. So we'll see what happens. Um, but I think Pitt, you know, they're they're looking to just kind of galvanize here in this early part of the season. You know, this is a new look team. This is a team which had a lot of reconstruction in the offseason, obviously, with the transfers coming in and with the twins coming in and um what we thought was going to be Dior Johnson obviously isn't right now and probably won't be. So We'll see what happens, uh, but I'm excited just in general for the season to start. This is my favorite time of year. This is this is what I live for right here. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I love it. And you know, I'd say for Hughley, um, real real important that he's back by like December 20th. That's really when ACC play kicks off, and I, I think that that's probably going to be if he's not back by then, they're in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we'll see what happens. The season's going to be interesting. It's always fun, and I love it. I'll just take a little progress from Pit Hoops this year and be and be pretty satisfied. So, uh, hey, unless you got anything else, Corey, I think that's a good place to end, and uh, probably just throw it to Hell to Pit. Hell to Pit. There you go.